I went to the offices of Global Action Plan, conveniently only about a 20-minute walk from where uh, we have our offices, and we met Sonia Graham. And Sonia Graham is the managing partner of Global Action Plan, who are a charity that you've probably not heard of. She would say that herself. They're quite small, but she's very, very big on collaboration. And if I say Clean Air Day, you may have some kind of you may be cognizant of some of the work that they're up to. Now, where Sonia was brilliant was, A, she's a recent mum, so she has a very kind of first-hand experience of really understanding young people. But in Global Action Plan, lots of their work is data-powered. Lots of their work uses collaborative techniques to win almost for the greater good. Have a listen to my chat with Sonia. We cover her background, we chat about her role at Global Action Plan and the work that they're doing. And then we ask, we sort of uncover and go a bit deeper and we find out what are the real things that we can glean from Sonia that we can apply to our daily lives in, a, in youth marketing or youth culture. We ask Sonia Graham from Global Action Plan for her rocket fuel. So first thing, Sonia, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. It's really, really good to have you. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. No worries. Let's start with a bit about you. Tell us about your journey and tell us about what your role encompasses now. Sure thing. So I suppose if I just start with what I studied, um, I started doing environment um, Environmental sciences up in Edinburgh and rapidly recognised the role that humans played in, in the environment and the protection of it. So I morphed that into psychology. So I suppose I came out with sort of environmental psych kind of um, background. Um, I then did your usual crazy combination of post-uni activities. So I was teaching A-level psychology and I was wedding planning and all sorts of, of things for a catering company um, before taking on my first, I suppose, proper job which was in the dark side. So I joined the environmental department of a big oil company. Oh, wow. Yeah, so quite, so quite I think, unusual as a start mm. to the environmental uh, NGO sector. Um, but it was uh, really critical for me in understanding, I suppose, from the inside of the system, like mm. what, what, what uh, environmental issues looked like, what you could do. And I think probably I would have saved more carbon in that role than in anything I do later in life, just because the sheer scale of... Yeah of the industry. Um, so I went on from that to join a very tiny five-person consultancy and set up a behaviour change unit before joining GAP as our creative development manager, which was probably about eight years ago now. So first of all, a behavioural change unit. Talk yes. to me about what that involves <laughs> and what that does. So, so I suppose um, at the time I joined a small consultancy that looked at the very technical, how do we help, help buildings and organisations save energy through using kit um, and they rapidly discovered that if you don't engage people in the kit, they do really weird things that counteract the kit. So okay. it's things like really sophisticated uh, internal uh, ventilation systems and people opening windows through to uh, people turning off things that they didn't like the noise of. So um, on a very simple level, the behaviour change department I set up was to try and help uh, engage with people who were um, sort of party to these changes and help them to both be involved in the design of them but then also make them work better um, and that grew to be okay so how can you go beyond just the kind of interaction with kit and go what can we um, as humans change in terms of our, our behavior and the way we look at things whether we live and work to have a positive impact on our environment okay 
And your managing partner of Global Action Plan. What, is, what does that mean? What does your role look like? Oh, a whole host of things. So I, um, I took over uh, the running of the organisation three years ago from the founder who moved on to set up another charity. Oh, wow. And um, I now run Gap with um, my fellow partner, Chris Large. And uh, I mean, for a small charity, that means anything from working with the trustees on strategy to fixing the coffee machine. It's yeah. quite wide ranging, but I suppose predominantly focusing on what are the things we want to change in the world? How, what are the tactics that we need to use to help change those? And how do we get people to support us to do that? And I will be frank, I'd not heard of Global Action Plan before I was introduced to you by contact, but I had heard of Clean Air Day. And that was one of your leading initiatives, that's fair to say. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's one thing that I think is really important about the way we work is that we're not about a sort of front facing brand. We're mm. not there to be like, everyone must know global action plan. It's about how do you solve the issue? How do you engage people on something? And what's the best route to doing that? So Clean Air Day, we're you know supporting thousands of organisations to take action. You wouldn't necessarily know we're the ones doing that, but we play a critical role in making it happen. And we get much more impact from that than if we decided as small 15-person charity to try and do that on our own and push our name. Got it. Okay. Let's focus on you. Um, have you a mentor? Have you ever had a mentor or something? I've always find this one a strange one. I've never had... Oh, no, I lie. I have once had a formal mentor through a mentoring kind of matching process. And it was all actually quite peculiar um, and a bit too formulaic and I didn't get a huge amount out of it and I think that's because where I really gain insights from people is when I have a connection with them and when I see they have an incredible expertise that I would love to learn from versus just being told this person is your mentor learn from them mm -hmm. so um, I don't have an official mentor now but I do have nine trustees who I see as mentors um, and they bring very very different skill sets from you know a really top level ex McKinsey consultancy strategy um, you know fry your mind with all the possibilities through to mm. incredibly entrepreneurial business owners who can help me think about how do we make the charity run more smoothly? So I suppose I'm very lucky in having, yeah, nine very supportive trustees who can act as mentors and not as sure. bosses, I suppose, in the same way as... And let's mine. focus on you as a manager. How are you as a manager? And, and what, what are the qualities you look for in the people that you work with? Um, I am probably a nightmare as a manager. I'm always, I'm super excited. Well done, that's brilliant. Now can we double it, you know? So um, I like to think I'm human and approachable with it. So not a scary boss, but I, I will always challenge people to think, how can we do things differently, better, more impactfully? Um, and I suppose that's also the way I like to be managed. I like people to be straight with me and I like people to challenge me to, to think bigger and to, to almost to get me to, to, to try things I'm frightened of okay. um, because that excites me and, and pushes me to do things better. So you've been managing partner of Global Action Plan, did you say for three years? Yeah. Um, you, people focus on innovation and people are always asking businesses to be as innovative as possible. Um, how, how do you innovate? How often should you be innovating? And how, how do you stay focused on the core proposition? So I do think you should always be innovating when innovation is for the purpose of making something bigger, better, more impactful. So I think we should always be learning, trying new things. Um, but when you see something that really works, make it work and keep at it. Okay. Um, so I suppose how you keep focus is about really keeping your key mission in mind. Like for me, it's how will this help us to... Um, 
address the climate crisis? You know, would, is that, you know, 45 minutes now trying to work this new coffee machine? Probably not. Okay, mm. let's, let's get someone else working with me on that. And I can go back to focusing on our projects to do that. So I suppose it's about innovation that helps you achieve greater things rather than innovation for the sake of it. And do you have an eye on, speaking very personally now, let's pretend there are no bosses in this thing. Do you have an eye on other opportunities? Have you got a few side hustles? What, what almost keeps you, keeps you fresh and, and what keeps you competitive? So I've always, well, I say always for the last six years now, worked four days a week, okay. not working five days because I think it's really important to have, a, to have balance to your life and have time to pursue other things. Um, more recently, my main project has been bringing up my daughter. So I have a toddler and that trying to take up time, takes up time and yeah. energy. Um, and it's, it feels like a project, you know, trying to help navigate yeah. a world which is increasingly complicated and, and, and all the parental advice you get on mm. bringing up strong, kind individuals, etc. and what you do and don't do. Um, I suppose I've always had an aspiration of making my own wine. So I've always liked making things, brewing things, growing things. And I'd really like to work out how I can bring sustainability, innovation and kind of this love of wine and outdoors together. So maybe a sustainability innovation centre fueled by wine in a wood somewhere. That's amazing. So, what a great name. Nice. <laughs> um, can I ask, not a question that I've asked other people that have been on this podcast, but is there anything you've learned from business that you can apply to parenting? And is there anything you've learned from parenting that you can apply to business and to work? So from business to parenting, um, I think I think focusing on the things you've done really well is important because <laughs> yeah. you can certainly from parenting, you come out of a day going, oh my God, I've achieved nothing. This is awful. But actually, if you go back to, I have kept a small being alive mm. and she's happy, <laughs> you know, that's something you've achieved. So yeah. I think really making sure you're always focusing on things you have done well, not criticizing yourself for things you haven't managed to achieve, okay. being manageable about what you're setting um, yourself to do. From parenting to business, um, I suppose it's been a real awakener for me in terms of there are some things you cannot control. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, as a leader in a business, you can control a lot of things if you, you know, through, through your teams. Um, but having a toddler, you realise it doesn't matter what you do. Sometimes something else is going to happen. They yeah. are going to do something you didn't expect. Um, I think being relaxed about that now has been really helpful for me in the business context going, you know, look, these things happen. Yeah. Let's move on. What can we do differently? No, I, I can relate to that. <laughs> I always remember thinking that, um, yeah, even working in, in social media campaigns for clients, I remember thinking that if one tweet doesn't go out tonight, it isn't the worst thing in the world. And similarly, having kind of a renewed energy around what you can control, I can relate to. Final question in this section, Sonia. What are you known for? What are you known for in work? What are you known for outside of work? Uh, I would suppose people would say um, energy. I've always got a lot of energy and excitement and people are always uh, slightly gobsmacked to find out I've had two hours sleep and I'm still jumping around, sort of coming up with new things. So energy, um, passion, and I suppose I really get a lot from being in a role and working with a bunch of people who are all driven to achieve societal good and environmental good. So passion for doing something good. Um, and then I suppose more lightheartedly, I've been known for throwing lots of silly, fancy dress parties with ridiculous numbers of games, which I enjoy inflicting on both work what and... What was the last themed fancy dress party that you held? The last themed one we held. So we had a murder, murder mystery themed pirate 
party at the office for our last Christmas party. Brilliant. Um, which doesn't necessarily go together seamlessly, but mm. was incredible. Involved locking a room full of chocolate fondue away from staff until we'd solved riddles to get to it and all sorts of fun. So I'm here with Sonia Graham from Global Action Plan and this is the part of the podcast where we're going to focus on your role and on your business. So unpack Global Action Plan for me. What, what are the aims of the business, Sonia? What do you do? So I suppose put simply, we aim to help people to live their lives in ways that are better for both them and the planet. So it's all about how do we have better well-being, better lives, more fulfilling lives, happiness, but also do that in a way that is positive, not negative, to the environment that we live in and society. So there's a bit too much stick and not enough carrot when people are being educated with these messages? Is that probably a thing? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the environmental movement have been very guilty of making people feel awful. Mm. Um, and there is absolutely um, time and space for crisis messaging, and we need that. Um, but we also need to recognise that people need to aspire to do things differently, not just be told they have to do it. Is there a problem in the rhetoric as well? So I think I've seen an email from a Guardian journalist where they're no longer allowed to call it, is it climate change? They have to call it global a global crisis or something like that. Is there, is there just, do we need to strive for a commonality in the way that, that the climate is being described? Or do you not see that as important? I, I actually think we're getting to a better place than mm. we've been. So I think we've we've had a lot of slightly ambiguous terms, you know, um, global warming doesn't represent what's actually happening. It's, sure. It is very much climate change, for instance. Climate change is a bit nothingy. Climate crisis, which is something yeah. that's come out of the youth strikes, human mm. extension rebellion, is much more urgent to the point and represents better what we need to deal with. So I think actually language seems to be converging and simplifying. And I put a lot of that down to young people and the way that they are talking about it. It's Let's look at what Global Action Plan means to audiences. We kind of covered some of this in the in the first section, but you do you not care that the brand is out there? Does, does the brand need to matter to audiences or is it purely about the issues? I think front and foremost, it's about the issues. Right. So it's more important that the message is compelling and how it's represented is the most likely route to get action. First and foremost, that's most important. I mean, obviously, then when people look into it, they need to understand that our brand and our values are consistent with those messages and see us as the kind of the neutral um, and um, driven, I suppose, charity that we are. But yes, we're not trying to put kite marks on things, stamps on things, say, you know, this is all about Global Action Plan. It's about how do you create the biggest change? So, for example, um, this autumn we're launching a hub for teachers called Transform Our World, which is all about getting them the best resources and support available to support students to take action on climate change, right? Yeah. Now, I would love to say we own all the best resources out there, but we don't. And so this hub will be about getting everything across the environmental sector that is best quality as deemed by teachers into a space for teachers to use. So that needs and necessitates a cross-sector approach that is not gap, but is joint. It strikes me as though there's a lot of, there are, there's one big theme here with everything that you've said so far, and that's one of collaboration. So it strikes me as though you're aware that the charity is 15 to 20 people. You're aware that 
that actually without collaborating with other people, with other bodies to generate other resources, to have other people work with you on Clean Air Day, you're aware of the limitations and therefore that makes you stronger. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think so. I think just on a practical level, we're not, our ambition is not to try and, you know, grow the charity to a size that we can be in every town, every city, every country, you know, we've got a network mm. and we work with the people in that network best positioned to engage people locally. Um, and so if you look at Clean Air Day in year one, which was three years ago, we really had to manhandle and, and make those events happen that year. We were doing it mostly on our own and we made maybe, I think, 15, 20 events happen. This year, there were like over 500 events and wow. I think we're involved in two of them. Okay. And that just shows, you know, over three mm. years, you've gone from something we really had to push and curate to being something that has grown and people are just jumping on. And, you know, that is incredible and much more efficient use of our time than us trying to be at 550 plus events in the UK. So big question, whose job is it to educate young audiences on the issues around climate change, climate crisis? Is it politics? Is it business? Is it education? Do you you see it as being as delineated as that? So um, I suppose two things I'd I'd pull out there. One, I think educate's probably the wrong wrong term. So I think if anything, young people are more aware and more concerned by these issues than than most of the rest of the population. In fact, that's what surveys show us. So it's more about how can um, society and businesses, politics, support young people to take action and listen to their demands. Um, And all of them have a role in that. So um, businesses need to be offering different business models, different, more sustainable products. They need to be helping guide and inform customer choices so that they can reduce the impact that they have. Um, Governments need to be putting investment into the R&D of things that need to develop in order to change our world, like renewable energy. Um, They need to be bringing in uh, legislation that um, puts, for instance, climate change as a conversation across the whole curriculum. So everyone has a role in this. It's it's not one or or the other, really. Um, And I think it's more about supporting young people than necessarily educating. Do you think your time working for an oil company has given you a unique insight into business? And do you think fundamentally businesses are trying to do better? Do you think they're trying to be do a better job? Oh, I think I think some some definitely are, okay. and a lot of them hmm. say they are and are not. Right. Um, has I definitely got a lot of insights from working within an oil within the oil industry? I think um, the reminder that fundamentally anyone across any business is is usually a good person with the same values right they're not all out to get the world Um, do you think there are some cynical csr exercises where if you scratch beneath the surface there's nothing there do you think that's still absolutely undoubtedly and i think um there's you know quite valid criticism of sort of small amounts of investment that say fossil fuel companies are putting into environmental efforts or um maybe decarbonizing things um, when actually fundamentally it's the fossil fuel their main product that's the problem and so anything is token so it's it's a space where we need some really quite radical changes some very fundamental um, revolutions to business models whether in fashion or in in food or in in, in actually in most sectors Um, and so just tokenistic uh, CSR programs just aren't going to cut it. So in your communication with schools, and therefore by, by extension children, how, how do they respond? You've, you've mentioned be positive and be, mm. be kind of less strict and let's not tell audiences off. And 
how do they respond when you do adopt this positive approach in your experience? So, I mean, it's not just positive. It's also about being quite straight, talking about the scale of the issue. Um, right. I think what's really um, inspired me with the young people that we've been working with on this and the focus groups has been that, one, they get it, right? They fundamentally get it from a very, very early age. Climate change, they understand it and they think it needs to stop and they want to... So in focus groups you've seen, you've seen children go, I understand that climate change is damaging the planet. Absolutely. Wow. And that we all need to do something about it and that it is not just not just um, kids who should be shouting about this. Really, every business should be focusing on this. And I think what's really distressing is listening to them say, we feel like it's only us. We feel like it's our responsibility to change this. And you're hearing, you know, 10-year-olds go, I'm, I'm racked with guilt because the world is facing this crisis and businesses just don't seem to be taking it seriously and yeah. hearing that is is uh, it's just super upsetting I mean a load of YouTube videos that we've got up of, of some of these conversations that I can point you to but it's yeah. it's incredible and I think the other bit that's really inspired me has or surprised me has been the level of sophistication of the understanding so yeah. recently we've been running um, focus groups that look at the links between uh, drivers of hyperconsumption. so pushing us to feel we need to buy more stuff. Um, and kids very quickly get the links between that and um, the well-being issues that they're seeing in their peers and yeah. that we're seeing in stats. So just these connections between what can be quite complex relationships and issues, they get and they're like, right, this needs to, this needs to change. We can't have people be feeling bad about themselves and being made to feel bad in order to make them buy things, which then destroy the planet by being things that we do not need and you know, using resources that we cannot expend. Okay. How young is too young? When, when do you think as individuals, as a wider society, in schools, we should start talking to children about the issues around climate change? So I don't think there is a too young. I think it's about the level that you engage. Like, what are you talking about? So with my toddler, I'm already really working at how do I help her to understand you know, respect and kindness for nature. So it's, you know, don't pull the head off that daisy, you know, stroke the dog. I mean, they're very fundamental, basic things, yeah. right? But it's about respect, kindness, and, and the values that you want them to show in the rest of their lives. So, you know, with five-year-olds, you're probably not going to be talking about, you know, the drivers of hyperconsumption, but you might be talking about, you know, ice caps. You might be talking about plastic pollution, which is something people get very easily. Let me put you on the spot and ask you a really unfair question. Go on then. If you've got a toddler, yeah. how are you squaring the fast fashion debate with the fact that your toddler's not going to fit into the clothes you're buying her now next month? So what I, well, actually, I think the kids, um, the, the baby um, area is, is, is almost an example to other age groups, because if you look within the sort of baby through to say two-year-olds, Facebook Marketplace, other sharing sites are just where you get clothes. You don't you don't go to Jojo Mama and Baby to get your new suits because they cost twenty quid for a romper, yeah. right? But you do go and you get secondhand stuff. So you're you're constantly sharing, you're getting secondhand because you recognise how short a time they wear things for. Now the fallacy of this is actually if you look at the number of times adults wear clothes for, it's probably fewer times yeah. that you put your six month old in a baby grow, and yet we still go out and buy it new rather than having that same mentality. So actually, for me, it's been more of an eye-opener that actually when you've got young kids, you are doing all these things that make sense. Um, Isn't that fascinating? And you don't do it later on. Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating. So the baby space in terms of supplies for babies, for clothes, for babies, that's almost got it sorted. I wonder why that isn't magnified and, and practised. Why it doesn't carry on, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, let's talk about Clean Air Day. Um, I suppose two questions. For the benefit of our listeners, tell us all about Clean Air Day and what happens. And how do you measure success? What does success look like? Okay, so Clean Air Day, put simply, was a day and is a day to raise visibility of something that kills more people than obesity, than alcohol. It's like the number two behind smoking of environmentally linked health risks, right? So it's huge. But four years ago, no one was talking about it. It was just not a conversation. Um, And so we, three years ago, brought together a whole group of organisations, health academics, um, NGOs, businesses, to say, look, we need to get the message out there to the public. Let's do it together as one voice. But let's get those messages out there in a way that are mutually agreed. Let's make sure the health establishment back the, you know, the wording, the messaging and the stats that we're using. So that's where it came from. Um, It's now three years on. Um, absolutely huge. Um, the way that we measure success, there's many, many, but the two key ones are we want to see how many people better understand the things that they can do to protect themselves from air pollution, but also reduce air pollution, and the number of people that are taking a lo- new low pollution action, so like walking the kids to school rather than driving them. So it's all about a day of trial, it's about highlighting. Uh, maximising media coverage so that people really hear about it and helping people to try new things. So this year we saw all sorts of situations where, for instance, roads were closed. And that's because schools can go to the local council, look, this is clean air day, we want to do this. And so they can do something they might not have been able to do before. Or Great Ormond Street shut down an entire street in front of its hospital. Um, And there were kids who hadn't been outside for like a year who were able to come out and play on the street. Wow. Like, it was incredible. Mm -hmm. So it's about creating a focus that can make an issue that is quite invisible, visible. And you're still thinking in terms of those, if you like, communication building blocks. So the Great Ormond Street example is a really good example because it's happening, because it's the thing. But it's also talkability and it's also the images of that. It's about amplification of the stuff that's happening as well as the stuff happening in the first place. Oh, absolutely. It's about, I mean, you could do things throughout the year in fragmented ways and it just doesn't get coverage. Whereas if you you pull, I suppose, that momentum action around one day, then local radio stations want to talk about it. You've got the broadsheets covering journeys of, you know, journalists competing across the capital on different modes of transport and wearing air pollution monitors. So it's about focusing attention and action in what is an incredibly noisy world where there are so many different things vying for our attention. Have you a view on schools going on strike? Did you think that was broadly positive? Did you did, did global action plan have a have a view? Do you personally have a view? Oh personally I'm I'm all for it. I completely get that, you know, kids are sitting there going, this isn't really being talked about comprehensively at our school on the curriculum. We hear all these terrifying things, nothing is being done. What is the way to best get people to listen to us right? Striking on school, that was an incredibly powerful move that Greta did. And actually, I really respect all young people who are willing to to do something that's a little bit out there, Mm. you know, and and skip school and and show that they are, um, you know, passionate about something changing. And um, yeah, shame on the politicians who suggested that was not something they should be doing. They'd be better off in classrooms. Like, that's awful. Yeah. Yeah. You're obviously talking to a a large number of different stakeholders. So you're talking to teachers, you're talking to parents, you're talking to youth audiences as well. Mm. Are you aware of how you communicate with them in different ways, with different tone and across different channels? Yeah, I mean, it it depends 
uh, on the audience and the project. Sure. So, um, for instance, some campaigns we're looking at at the moment. Um, we are um, looking at a piece that's focusing on parents and getting out some resilience tactics and, and um, messaging that we've been creating around protecting young people from the impacts of advertising. And um, that we're going to be doing through more traditional, I suppose, channels. So, okay. you know, we want to be talking on Women's Hour. We want to be getting to the broadsheets. We want to be doing all those more traditional routes. Um, those are not routes we'd even consider, obviously, with youth audiences. And actually, for young people, we're, we're looking at collaborating with um, the, the grime world and, and environmental messaging through that, which is, you know, a term that until you know, a year ago, I had no idea what it meant. Yeah, so, sure. you know, so it's about working with the audience that you are talking to and finding fun, authentic, engaging ways to to speak with them. And we always do that through actually getting them to help co-create those messages and um, and tell us where they would look to for information. So co-creation is key as yeah. across all. I would, I would agree with you there. I suppose even when you're working with influencers, if you're working with influencers to build something else in partnership with the audience, that's when communication can be at its most effective, I suppose. Oh, absolutely. And, and where you can, actually getting um, peers to be the messengers, not you know, an ancient 36-year-old like myself, you know, it's actually, can you get 14-year-old talking to another 14-year-olds? Can we actually get people, you know, sure. sharing their own positions on this, not talking as the charity or as the, you know, campaigners behind it? So, final question for this section. What mistakes have Global Action Plan made, if any? I think um, one area that I would have, well, I look back on as being, I suppose, a, a, a sort of, a slight deviation from our mission would be in the last recession where I felt we ended up going after projects based on where funding was available rather than driving projects based on the impact that we thought we could create. And there was a little bit about necessity, yeah. but I'm really passionate that charities shouldn't, you know, just get funding to exist. They should be pushing causes that aren't aren't profitable ventures that wouldn't be happening, you know, in right. the private sector. So um, we did a bunch of, you know, consultancy projects to create environmental impact, which is great. But there are things that others could have been doing. And actually where I see the power of the charity sector and, and Global Action Plan is in really pushing issues that won't be won't be covered in other areas. So, for instance, our work now on, you know, um, materialistic values mm. and um, mental health in young people um, and the impact of advertising, that's something that's harder to fund, as you might guess, than... Completely. So that's so I did say that would be the final question, but it now isn't because you brought up a couple of things I'd love to ask a bit more on. First of all, kind of mental health in young people. Do you think that there is a competitive spirit, a, a kind of what used to be termed as a keeping up with the Joneses kind of thing in young people? And do you think that's, mag do you think that's amplified or magnified by social media as well? Um, in, in, in a word, yes. So uh, the focus groups we've done um, earlier this year all looked at um, how, how do young people feel these pressures if they do? Um, and I suppose the insights from those focus groups were people were acutely aware of, of the, the pressure to, um, to buy bigger, better, more flashier things in order to be cool and to keep up with the Kardashians mm. rather than the Joneses, etc. Um, the other insights were even though understanding this, um, social influences were predominantly seen as very positive influences. Yeah. So, you know, the Kardashians are strong women entrepreneurs, not necessarily as marketing tools. Sure. So, um, you know, some really important insights there. And there's 
not demonizing, you know, um, a whole host of um, social media influences that young people look up to, but instead of looking at other routes to help increase visibility of perhaps the things that are destructive and and get at those. So looking at um, working with brands to have more responsible messaging and or better products rather than focusing on necessarily the the channels that are being used. Um, Because I think quite rightly, young people um, through those groups were saying, how how dare all these these older people suggest that social media is a bad thing. It's a way of life. It's, you know, it's something that's important to to young people. And, you know, it's very patronising to be like, no, we should be limiting this and we shouldn't, you know, actually, how can we have a conversation that is raising the the um, levels of information and understanding about issues so that young people can take that into account and be more resilient to it, not necessarily um, telling them what they should or shouldn't be doing. Final section of our conversation with Sonia Gray from Global Action Plan is around your rocket fuel, Sonia. So the, the name of the podcast is Rocket Fuel because we're after the insights that you've gleaned from your experience and your knowledge from, from, your, from your experience that our audience can apply in their day-to-day lives. So first question of, in this bit, what do you know about young audiences? Gosh, so no pressure there then. Um, <laughs> only golden nuggets. Um, what do I know about youth audiences? I think always less than I think I do. So one thing that we always see in, in focus groups is that there are new surprises, new insights, new trends that we hadn't heard of. Um, I suppose what's really always consistent is the levels of passion, um, the the freshness and the, I suppose that there's less um, fettering. Can you even use that in that way? Yeah. Fettering of through societal expectations. There's a, There's a sort of, a more freedom um, and creativity and there's less hampering of kind of ambitions in yeah. terms of what is and isn't possible. So that's something we always see in, in youth audiences. Okay. And then in an age of brand purpose, in an age of people looking for authentic communication, what do you think is important to youth audiences? So I don't really think that's changed from whenever, um, really. It's... it's Family, friends, love, relationships, fun, new experiences. I think those are all still the things that young people tell us they value. And do you think anything's changed about young audiences and what will change next? So I think what has changed significantly is the way that young people get, meet those those needs. Um, And you're seeing um, very different ways to meeting their needs than, I mean, even when I was... A teenager so like you're seeing international relationships through you know social media as opposed to a very arduous like post pen pal relationship that you're pushed to do by school you know you're you're learning skills through youtube you're you know, it's a very different virtual way of accessing those same needs um i suppose what i'm seeing is changing is that there is now a, a stronger realization that those those needs aren't necessarily met by those virtual um, roots in isolation they are additional and I think I'm seeing more and more young people uh, seek more of those experiences now offline as well as online so whereas you know you might watch Bake Off uh, to to learn about baking it's not really a substitute for actually being with your friends and trying to bake so making sure lots of young people looking at yeah how can I still have the experiences not just get them through the virtual means and um, so you know your Snapchat conversation does not 
mean that you don't value or have that conversation in your bedroom with three mates after school. So we are seeing more and more young people recognise the importance of the offline as well as the online. So a movement towards real world experiences in parallel yes. with experiences in social media, whether that be chats or, or something bigger. So that's fascinating, I get that. And I'm, I'd agree for what it's worth. So go on then, who's getting it right and who's getting it wrong? I won't ask you to name and shame, but what are the common pitfalls people can fall into or brands or organisations can uh, can fall into when talking to youth audiences? So um, if I extend that also to be politicians sure. and, and, and broader, I think where people get it wrong is when they try to speak on behalf of young people. So we are... Uh, we are doing X because that's what young people need in the future okay. and making sort of suppositions about what young people actually do need and want in the future yeah. rather than doing that based on a firm understanding of what young people actually want and, and what they're looking for. Yeah. And you hear it time and time again, especially from the political space, you know, young people need this. Um, do they actually? Is, is that what they're looking for? Do you for? think business is any better? Um. Oh, it's diff- it's really difficult. I think there's much more incentive um, and there's much more market research in terms of what what youth needs and how they're getting information and how best to get to young people. Um, ultimately, the majority of marketing is to get people to buy things they might not have needed. So I would question, you know, from a sustainability point of view, if you can ever say that a business is responsible if they are trying to get people to buy things they don't need. However, there are businesses that are fulfilling a need and not trying to drive hyper-consumption. So, for example, Patagonia and and the sites that I go to like Buy Me Once Mm. or um, Ethical Superstore, where at least you've got businesses who are um, putting planetary and resource considerations um, higher up um, the, the, the chain and... So Patagonia is saying, right, actually, you know, let's invest in something that lasts and we'll fix it. Let's not try and get you to buy a new top every week and profess that we're trying to get you to buy a full pan t-shirt every week because it will make you feel better if you'd wear something different on a Saturday night, you know. So I think it's where companies are trying to help people to make sensible investment of their very valuable resources and time. Um, to get something they need and can love rather than businesses who are trying to push you to continually buy stuff that, you know, Uncle Albert will find hilarious for 15 minutes on Christmas Day. Sure. But then we'll go rapidly in a yeah. bin. So it's the, it's about the model, I think, that you're, that you're coming from as a business that would make in my books. Okay. And then finally, um, what's the one takeaway that you'd want to leave with everybody listening? One takeaway about whether it be you, Global Action Plan, or youth and children's audiences, what one takeaway could you offer everyone listening? I suppose a really big one for me is learning from the simplicity and like passion of the youth voice. So if you look at the environmental movement that we're in, we've been tying ourselves in knots for decades over carbon trajectories and pathways. And, you know, you know, can we say with 100% certainty X and Y? And then you've got young people coming along saying the house is on fire this is a crisis we must act yeah they're not worried about putting noses out of joint they're not worried about if they're going to be misinterpreted they're like this just needs to happen so i think learning from young people that we just need to say it how it is sometimes and and get on with 
making changes is is really key for our movement. I think simplicity of communication is a really good space to uh, place to leave this conversation. Actually, I couldn't agree more. So yeah, Sonia, where can people find out more about you if you want them to find out more about you, and where can people find out more about Global Action Plan? So I'd much rather they found out about our cause and, okay. and the charity. So it's um, www.globalactionplan.org.uk. Um, you can search me down on Twitter, but I'm not very good at tweeting. It's uh, uh, at Sonia underscore tweets and Sonia with a J. Fine. And Global Action Plans across all social media as yeah, well? Yeah, absolutely. So you can go on Instagram, uh, you can go on Twitter, which is more of our kind of B2B messaging. Cool. Uh, Instagram's quite lively with our youth. Great. Campaigns. And you'd love to people to come to Instagram to see your youth campaigns and you'd love brands to come to your LinkedIn to work with you collaboratively on something exciting. Absolutely. If we can work with organisations to help young people to really uh, lead action on climate change and inform sustainable choices and lifestyles, then we would love to do so. Brilliant. Sonia, thank you so much for your time. It's been brilliant. Thank You're you welcome. So much. Thank you. I hope you agree that was a great chat, fascinating conversation, a really awesome guest. If you enjoyed it, let us know. You can get in touch with us across all socials at We Are Rocket or with me directly at James Erskine on Twitter. For more, tune in next week. We're still in our first season. We're still kind of evolving what we're going to try and do. We know that we want to learn from people in the youth culture, youth marketing space to establish what their rocket fuel is. Give us a five-star review, share the podcast, and tune in again next week. Thanks for listening. This is a Rocket Audio production.